Throughout this week, I've been remembering and lifting up an individual in prayer who's been in real need. And she, uh, I talked to her on the phone and um, just a couple days ago, and she asked again, could the church family remember me on this day? Because um, this Sunday morning is the one-year point since um, Sam uh, Crape and her husband and their son Jesse lost their son Dakota in that accident. And I, I assured Sam that our church family would be more than happy to bow their hearts with me as we lift her up in prayer. Um, we don't always do that. We don't always receive those requests. But when we do, on a situation like this, we our hearts go out to Sam and her family. Uh, it's just a particularly difficult day for her. And so I would like to begin this morning by asking you to just bow your heart with me as we open our time into the Word of God together, but also as we remember Sam and her family. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we pause right now before you, thanking you for this morning, thanking you for these wonderful songs we've been raising to the glory of your Son, Jesus. And we thank you, our Father, for the invitation that you have given us throughout the Word of God, throughout the Scriptures, to come to you and to make our needs and concerns, our heartaches known. And so, Lord, this morning, as a church family, we lift up Sam Crape and, and her husband and her son, as today is a very special and difficult in many ways day. But our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we thank you for more than the hope, even the comfort and tenderness with which he deals with us as your people. And so we thank you that together we can ask you, Lord, to extend a very tender hand to Sam today and bring a comfort to her maybe she's never known in her lifetime. Lord, you have told us in your word that the effectual prayer of a righteous man can avail much. And so all of us, brothers and sisters here today, are joining our hearts. And our Father, we're looking up to you as a church family and asking you to care for the needs of Sam and her family, to do what is beyond any of us to do in ministering to them and upholding them and drawing near to them and being all that you are to them. And I thank you, Lord, for our church. I thank you for a prayerful church, a, a church that has responded to you when you said, seek my face, my heart said, Thy face, O Lord, I will seek. 
And so we thank you for the fellowship we have together in Christ Jesus, and we thank you for this wondrous access to the throne of grace where we receive help, support, mercy, and care in time of need. So thank you, Lord, for answering our prayer this morning. And thank you now for these moments as we open the sacred text of Scripture, the truth that you've revealed, truth that did not originate with man, but truth that came to us from above by revelation, carrying with it all of the clarity and infallibility, authority, and sufficiency of the Word of God. Speak to us, Lord, this morning through the Word preached and give us receptive hearts to respond to you. We thank you for all of it. In Christ's wonderful name, our Savior. Amen. I've often wondered what it must have been like for that Old Testament priest, the high priest, once a year when the time would come for him to prepare himself and do all that the law had commanded him to do in terms of all of the washing and cleansing and preparations, the high priest's garment with the ephod and all that went with it, all very, very articulately um, uh, required of God before he could enter into the temple into the holiest of holy. Once a year he could go there and he went there representing the people of Israel, the people of God. And he went to offer sacrifice and intercession on their behalf. And um, he could only do this once a year. And he had to be very, very careful of how he came into that holy place. Today we're going to be talking about another priest, the final priest, the great high priest, and what he means to us as his people. So if you have your Bible with you or your cell phone and your Bible app, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4? Hebrews chapter 4 As we look at what I've entitled our perpetual and perfect high priest. As we think about this passage, what I want to do today is touch on two main points. We'll have some lesser points, but two main concerns. First of all, Thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ in this role that he has as our great high priest. In other words, what does this passage say concerning the great high priest? Secondly, then, to bring it closer to home to each one of us, I want to uh, consider, secondly, the trust that you and all believers have in him 
and should cultivate more and more in his person and in his activity as the great high priest. And that will be of even greater interest, perhaps, because it will be much more personal on the second point. So to start with, I'd like you to follow with me as I read verses 14 through 16. Kathy was nice enough to put this PowerPoint together so you can follow up above if you'd like. Beginning at verse 14, the writer of Hebrews gives us this instruction. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, as there's, you know, he is the inexhaustible topic. He, in scripture, there are literally countless titles and names and types and figures concerning Christ. But this one in particular draws from the Old Testament. And we sang just a few moments ago how the veil in the temple was rent in two. And that literally happened when Christ cried, it is finished on the cross and gave up his spirit to the Father having paid for our sins, having having bore the judgment for our sins forever. That great uh, veil was rent from top to bottom. But even though that literally happened, even that was a picture of the reality that now is perpetually before us. And that is that now, appearing in the presence of God the Father, there is a man. There is a man who is fully God and fully man who is at the right hand of God the Father. He has entered through the veil into the holiest of holies, there to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And there he is. And um, as we look at this, these verses, I want to start with thinking about Christ himself as the, our great high priest. What do we learn about him? Just in brief. The first thing that we see in these verses about him, in verse 14, we see that he is the superior high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold strong in our faith in Christ himself, because he is not temporary. He is not a passing. He's not a once a year intercessor like the Old Testament high priests were, but now he appears perpetually and eternally at the right hand of God the Father 
on the behalf of all of his people. That's clear enough. And, and I use the word superior because that's really the theme of the book of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. It begins, you know, the book of Hebrews begins in a way that's just startling. It's almost like an exploding star in the opening verses of Hebrews. And after announcing the book and its theme of Christ, verse 3 just erupts with this statement. And he, speaking of Christ, he is the very radiance of God. The exact image of his person, upholding everything by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the book of Hebrews just erupts with this statement about him, and then it goes on to elucidate or elaborate that he is superior to the angels, he is superior to Moses, he is superior to uh, Aaron and the priesthood, he is superior to the prophets, he is superior in every conceivable way. And now we're coming to this matter of the great high priest, and he is superior because his intercessory work at God's right hand on our behalf is not temporary. It's not fleeting. It is eternal and perpetual. It is endless. There appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. What a great high priest we have. Secondly, if all he was was great and jaw-droppingly awesome in his person and power and greatness, you know that verse in verse 3 that says he upholds all things by the word of his power? You know what that idea is? <laughs> it's so staggering. He upholds the molecular structure of the universe by the word of his own power. In other words, in Genesis 1, when it says, and God said, that was the creative act, and it was so. The parallel or, or the complementary term between God said, let there be light, and it was so, that from the said to the so is one's a creative act and the other is a sustaining act. So all creation, the world we live in, you and me, all of us are actually the said, the so of what he said. All the universe, he said, he spoke, and it's so because Jesus Christ upholds it all by the word of his power. That upholding by the word of his power simply is the soul. Isn't that amazing? So here we are. We exist and we are so because of his creative and sustaining power. And if that wasn't all we knew about him, it would be a little bit, if that was all we knew, it would be terrifying. If we really thought it through, and we would realize how utterly out of control 
we really are about most things. We are not in charge. We are not in control. The little Bible translation that Terry gave me sometimes back, it's in a Hawaiian uh, pigeon uh, dialect. Whenever it mentions the Lord, Jesus Christ, uh, because of the way they speak and their dialect, it just says, the one in charge. From the right hand of the throne of God, he's in charge, upholding the creation. Having purged our sins, seated at the right hand of God, the very effulgence, the outshining, the radiance of the very glory of God. That's who Jesus is, our great high priest. And if that's all we knew, it would be terrifying. But it's not all we know. Because secondly, we also find that he is in this passage not only the superior high priest, he is the sympathetic high priest. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So think of that. The one we were just talking about, his heart is moved toward each of his own with a sympathy so limitless, so vast, so, so tender and so understanding that we just can't grasp it. But the sympathetic heart, the beautiful heart of Christ towards his own. Sometimes I have thought in my lifetime that I haven't, Lord, if you were really sympathetic, you just wouldn't let me face this hardship. <laughs> and through the years, of course, the Lord teaches us, doesn't he, that no, my child, it's in the midst of those hardships that I show you my sympathetic heart, my tender heart, my understanding heart. Thirdly, he's not only superior, sympathetic, but he's, he is the sinless high priest. Verse 15 again, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And I know we read that and we think, well, yeah, I know that. Jesus doesn't have any sins. He never did anything wrong and so on. And we, we're glad for that. I wish I could relate, but I can't. Um, but that, it's, it's a whole lot more than that. Do you realize that from the birth, the virgin birth of Christ, until the cry from the cross, it is finished, that had he not lived a sinless life, his entire life, 30-something years, had he not lived that way, then the cross would be meaningless and ineffectual. He had to take to the cross his sinless life if he was to atone for us and represent us. So he stepped in between the wrath and judgment of God as the sinless substitute and he intercepted God's judgment for us. And then the third day rose again, taught and prepared his disciples to go into the world with the gospel, and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Four times in the book of Hebrews, 
the writer emphasizes that Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. Remember that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and did what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he is superior, sympathetic, he is sinless, but he's also the saving high priest. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now listen to me. You might be thinking, aren't you stretching a little there, Pastor, with the word save? No, not really. Because throughout our New Testaments, our salvation is put before us in three different tenses. I am saved in the past when the Lord himself took away the penalty of my sin. That's called justification, declared righteous by God. But in the present tense, I still struggle with sin and weakness. And, and, and that is the, the tense, the present tense of salvation is what we call ongoing sanctification, transformation. The Lord is at work to change us. We call that sanctification. That is not dealing with the penalty of sin. It's dealing with the power of sin over my life. But the third tense is future salvation, which the Bible calls glorification, the final perfect state when God's design for each of us is finished and sin will be a thing of the past forever and good riddance, right? It will be gone. And that in the future, the future tense is when sin, its very presence has been eliminated. So this passage, let us draw near with confidence. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never come by faith and trusted him for forgiveness of sin and salvation, if you've never made that personal step, and it must be personal. You can't live off of grandma's faith or Uncle Fred's faith or anybody else's faith. You can't have a second-hand conversion. You must come to Christ, each one of you. Each of us personally must come to Christ and receive him as our Savior and Lord. And then the conversion occurs. Forgiveness takes place and a new life begins. So we come to the throne of grace, to Christ, to receive mercy and grace at the beginning of our Christian life. We trust him. Throughout our Christian life, we trust him for ongoing supplies of mercy and grace. I have a hunch that some of us in this very room today have needed some expressions of mercy and grace even in the past week. Am I right? See, it's an ongoing and because he is the perpetual and perfect great high priest, he extends mercy and grace as we go. 
and he travels with us because he's God. And then ultimately, that saving that will occur when he rescues us. Remember how Paul put it? We are closer to salvation than when we first began. That's a strange way to put it. Paul, you, I'm already saved. He says, yeah, Tony, you are. But you're being saved on a daily basis, and you're not going to be ultimately saved until you get home. I need God to save me every day. Not because I'm going to lose my salvation, but because in my personal experience of present tense, I need rescued from the power of sin over my life. So those are the four, and that's what's there. And we could just stop right now and sing some more songs to the Lord, and we'd be okay probably. We'd probably go home and say, well, that was all right. But let's get a little more personal. Let's bring it home now. Concerning your trust, my trust. You know, we throw that word trust around. Trust the Lord. What does that mean? Why should I trust him? And what if I can say, well, you know, I've trusted him in the past for some very specific things, and he never came through on those specific things. Somehow his sovereignty and his wisdom wasn't willing to bend to what I thought I specifically needed. You know, when we get home to heaven, we're all going to be thanking the Lord that, a, that, a, that several thousand of our prayers were probably never answered <laughs> because they were of the flesh, they were of personal ambition, they were, had a little bit of envy in them. You know, it's like the, it's like the person who said, Lord, if, if you can't make me thinner, can you at least make my friends look fat? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's one he would answer, do you think? But why trust him? Well, because of who he is. So let's look at this together. Let's just ponder this just a little bit. The first thing I want you to consider is we should trust our great high priest because there's nothing he doesn't know. Nothing is too complex for him. Nothing is too involved for him. Nothing is too difficult or perplexing for him. When it comes to my life, he knows everything. He knows you. He knows where you are. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're going through. He knows everything that happened yesterday and everything that's going to happen tomorrow. He knows you exhaustively. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. Right? Psalm 139 says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from afar. 
You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Why should I trust him and come to him, as this passage says, come with confidence to the throne of grace? Because he already knows. He already knows everything that can be known about me. And here's the one that's really staggering. If the truth be known, Lord, you know more about Tony than Tony knows about Tony, right? So his knowledge and understanding of us is a reason for confidence and trust. Secondly, there is nothing he doesn't see. The night may be dark, the circumstances might be tangled and confusing, the deception might be heavy upon you, fog and mist might settle over everything, and you may not feel that you can see beyond your nose. But there is nothing that escapes the Lord's notice. And if you take his hand, he will guide you and keep you from sinking and keep you from stumbling. I was thinking about this and some verses came to mind. Jeremiah 23, 24 says this, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? After all, I'm the one who upholds it all by the word of my power, including you. Do I not see what I'm upholding? One author, he's not well known, his name was Nicholas of Cusa. He did this wonderful exercise for a group of monks back in, uh, I think it was the 14th century. These monks asked him to teach them about how he cultivates his walk with God and with Christ and how he cultivates this idea of living in the presence of God. And so he thought about it for a while, and so he had an artist paint, paint a picture, a portrait. And the portrait was done, and, and the only thing, he didn't care what it was, but he wanted the eyes to be perfect. And when a portrait's done and the eyes are perfect, the eyes, no matter where you are in the room, follow you. So if it's a really good portrait, we could hang it right up here, and you would all look into the eyes of the portrait, and the portrait, portrait would be locking eyes with you. And if you got up and moved across the room and kept looking at it, you'd find that the portrait's eyes followed you. And so he sent this to the monks. And he said, listen to me now. I want you all to enter a room, hang a portrait where it's a well, well lit, and I want you monks to move about the room and keep watch on the eyes. And then he did what they never expected. There's a, listen to me now, there's a doctrine in, in Scripture and theologians call the simplicity of God. We like to talk about the attributes of God, and we should. His holiness, his, his beauty, his greatness, his power, his knowledge, and so on. But the simplicity of God means that when you think about his attributes, God is not a compilation of a bunch of characteristics. He is a perfect 
being from all eternity and all of his attributes are in perfect symmetry with one another. Now I know I'm talking high the theological things, but listen to me now. What Nicholas of Cusa did that was so brilliant was he took up again this idea that if Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and he is the ultimate portrait, right? The image of the invisible God. And from there, he who has eyes like a flame of fire, the Revel book of Revelation says, his eyes behold everything that he upholds. And he said, because of the simplicity of God, there's a sense in which the very sight is also the power that upholds everything. So, that means that if he blinked, you and me would go out of existence. Are you following? This is a little mystical, I guess. But the scriptures are mystical. The Apostle John, of all the writers, had a mystic love and passion to know God and live in his presence. So the one who upholds all things, sees all things, and in a sense the power to uphold and the power to see because of his simplicity are really one and the same. That's something to ponder. I don't expect you to really respond to that right now, but ponder it. Because it goes along with verses like this. Listen to this, Isaiah 43, 4. You, speaking to believers, you are precious in my sight. You are honored, and I love you. And this one I like especially. You whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In order to fulfill that promise, this one at the right hand of God has to be fully aware of your life and mine, or he could never fulfill that. Thirdly, there is nothing our great high priest doesn't hear. He, he inclines, he, he bends way over to listen to your briefest thought or faintest whisper. This word incline that we'll look at in a moment in Psalm 116, I think I've shared this before that sometimes when I go to the hospital and I'm with someone, in fact it hadn't been too long ago, a dear brother that was in the final stages of life and he was so weak and all he could do was just barely whisper, and I leaned over his hospital bed with my hand the top of his head and placed my ear right next to his lips so he could talk to me.
That's exactly what Psalm 116, verse 1 and 2 means. Listen to it. I love you, Lord, David writes. Lord, I love you. Why, David? Why do you love him? Because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. He not only, not only is it true that, he, that there's nothing he doesn't know, nothing he doesn't see, but there's nothing he doesn't hear. Psalm 17, 6 and 7 says this, I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand. What a great high priest. And finally, number four, there is nothing he can't do. There's nothing he can't accomplish. There's nothing he can't fix. There's nothing he can't forgive. There's no situation he can't alter or even reverse. You can trust him with your problems, with your fear, with your anxiety, your worries about the future, your life, your eternity. You can, in, you can entrust yourself to him because of who he is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I want to end with just a few verses, and I'd like you to turn to these so you can see them with me. Psalm 32. If you turn with me to Psalm 32, some of the most beautiful, hope-filled words David ever penned. Psalm 32. We're beginning at verse 6 of this wonderful psalm. And let's just pause for a moment and remember who it is that inspired these words. Yes, David wrote them, but this is God's word to each of us. And listen to what it says to us. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly Pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And now God's voice is speaking to David and to all believers. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts, who trusts, who trusts in the Lord, loving 
kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. What words of hope and confidence and assurance that we always have this access to the throne of grace, and we have it because there is one beside God the Father who represents us. There's nothing he doesn't know, nothing he doesn't see, nothing he doesn't hear, and there's nothing that he cannot do. And I didn't write this down, but this morning before I left the house on my second cup of coffee, I thought to myself again, this idea that whatever is true of our Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his person, his character, whatever's true of him has about it a limitless aspect. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, it's just this simple idea. I said a moment ago, I know there are prayers that I have prayed for specific things that later I will thank God he did not answer. But sometimes he does. And he does that, that sometimes in ways that I've never anticipated that were much better and much wiser. But listen to me now. The greatest comfort in the believer's life is the knowledge, as the pigeon Hawaiian translation puts it, is knowing that he's in charge. That's a way of saying he is sovereign. He is the sovereign one. But listen to me now. If he's sovereign, he is sovereign without limit. But if he's sympathetic, he's also sympathetic without limit. So when we approach him and we ask for sympathy, ask for understanding, can you please grant me mercy and help and grace? His sympathy is as vast and awesome as his sovereignty. <laughs> Isn't he something? <laughs> I feel like I should snip off the end of my tongue for saying that. I don't know how to verbalize these things. But remember this. There is a portrait a living, exalted, glorious, risen portrait who's at the right hand of God. And all you have to do is glance up and meet his eyes, and you'll find that his eyes were on you all the time. For he beholds everything that he upholds in all creation, including little bitty you and little bitty me, on this tiny little planet, on this mediocre-sized spiral galaxy, in a vast universe that is beyond comprehension. And yet he says, come to me. I have a heart for you. I care for you. Isn't he wonderful? Sometimes in bringing the word, there, there are four moods, you know, when you're preaching and teaching. There is... Uh, There's different moods. There's, there's the imperative mood is a mood of command. 
And sometimes God's words, thus saith the Lord, he commands us. Flee from sexual immorality and pursue righteousness, faith, love, self-control with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee those things. That's a command. Other times, the mood is not an imperative command. Sometimes it is more of indicative, meaning what are the facts? What are the truths? And part of what we had today was that very thing. He is a superior high priest, a sympathetic high priest, a sinless high priest, and a saving. Those are all indicative facts that the scriptures bear out. Then there's the exclamatory. Those are expressions like we're ending this with. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a great high priest he is. That's exclaiming what's true. But there's also interrogative. Interrogative, you hear the word in there, interrogation. An interrogative mood is asking questions. And so my simple question to you and to me this morning, are you presently trusting him? Are you trusting him? Are you leaning on him? Are you depending on him? Knowing both his sovereign control and his sympathetic heart. Let's encourage one another to trust in the Lord, right? Lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him so that he makes our paths straight.